Welcome to Halfway to History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. Sometimes not so long ago. Do we have any updates? You mean what, since like four hours ago? (laughs) No one needs to know this. No, we do. uh, Well, I don't. I don't know. It was your topic. Do you? Oh, I don't have any updates either. Oh, wonderful. So are you going to do your topic now? Oh, right. (laughs) I've lost my mind. Okay. All right. So this is for the week of April 20th through the 26th. Have you heard... Chant de guerre pour l'armée du Rhin. No. In English, it means war song for the army of the Rhine. Still don't know. Damn. It was composed on April 25th, 1792 by Claude Joseph Rouget de Lys after the Baron Philippe Frederick de Diedrich, the mayor of Strasbourg, requested de Lys come up with a song that, quote, will rally our soldiers from all over to defend their homeland that is under threat. So at this point, France was in the midst of the French Revolution, and European monarchs were becoming concerned that the revolutionary fervor would spill into their own countries. Austrian and Prussian troops had invaded in the War of the First Coalition in an effort to stop the revolution, or at least keep it contained to France. And initially, the French army didn't do so hot. <laughs> oh, really? You don't say. Yeah. The French um, didn't do so hot with war. <laughs> Color me shocked. Yeah, well, so they didn't do so great. And the coalition armies in- invaded France. Uh, relations between France and neighboring countries deteriorated rapidly. And on April 20th, 1972, the Legislative Assembly voted to declare war on Prussia and Austria. In a kind of ironic turn of events, the Baron de Dietrich was executed the next year during the Reign of Terror. Oops. Yeah, oops. <laughs> so, anyway, the song quickly became a rallying call for the French Revolution, but seemed to be particularly poignant with the volunteer army units from Marseille. So, the story goes that a young volunteer from Montpellier called Francois Mirror had sung the song at a patriotic gathering in Marseille and the troops adopted it as the marching song of the National Guard of Marseille. I'm saying that Marseille a lot. It'll keep coming. You're just a Pokemon now. Marseille! I- <laughs> Marseille! I mean, I would be that Pokemon. <laughs> so the volunteer units from Marseille then sang the song as they made their entrance into Paris. Thus, the army began calling the song La Marseillaise in their honor. Have you heard of La Marseillaise? No. I don't know anything oh, about boy. French history at all. Like, okay. I know you're a French history major, but like, <laughs> I know that France exists. <laughs> and that's literally where my knowledge ends with anything about France. It's a country and it's there somewhere. <laughs> I know that Les Mis exists. And again, that's all I know about Les Mis other than someone throws bread. <laughs> and that's it. Megan. We need to murder him. <laughs> that's or it. at least educate him. Sorry. Hugh Jackman <laughs> is also part of it at some point, and that's that's really it. That's actually it. I know nothing else about it. <laughs> I think we've watched no. Les Mis together. No? No, absolutely not. I feel like I wanted to watch it, and I started it, and you fell asleep. Probably. I'm not into <laughs> depressing musicals. Or it's French. It's such a good movie. <laughs> Well, play. It's such a good play, but the movie's good, too, and that's what you would have slept through. So, 
Continue your story. Anyway. I will be learning a lot today. Great. Or nothing at all, depending on how many French words you put in there. Crap. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so <laughs> I'll just throw my my like language knowledge back at you. Nani? <laughs> Blingus? <laughs> <laughs> Only Portuguese word I know. <laughs> also, Oya. Oh yeah, and oh yeah, because now I say it like you'd say like oive or like hey, like that kind of thing. But I it say oh yeah. So it means look. So Jonathan's constant answer is, "What am I looking at?" Uh-huh. And it's usually me saying it because I did something stupid. Uh huh. <laughs> so it's not great for me. Okay, back on topic. Wee oui, wee oui, wee. Oui. Now that I've stopped laughing, <laughs> please do not quote the entirety of that French France video YouTube thing from like a decade ago. France can come too. <laughs> okay, so the National Convention um, accepted the song as the French National Anthem in a decree passed on July 14th, 19, 1795. Side note, July 14th is Bastille Day. What's that? Oh, we do not have time. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone who knows, it's Bastille Day. Make you, uh, so this made it France's first national anthem. Under Napoleon I, a.k.a. Napoleon Bonaparte, you have to have heard who? of him. I'm going to throw something at you. <laughs> Napoleon Bonaparte. Oui, oui. Napoleon syndrome. Remember, you know, short people? Oui, oui. Oh, boy. Um, so under Napoleon, it lost the status and was and then was banned outright by Louis XVIII and Charles X um, because of its revolutionary implications. It was briefly reinstated after the July Revolution of 1830, which was also known as the Second French Revolution. Um, and then it was banned again under Napoleon III. So on again, off again. It's like a really bad relationship just with a song. And apparently the same name. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, during That the... name, that song, don't go together. Nope. So during the 19th and early 20th centuries, La Marseillaise was recognized as the anthem of the International Revolutionary Movement. And as such, it was adopted by the Paris Commune in 1871. Uh, but it had new lyrics and it was done under the title La Marseillaise de la Commune. Because like Paris Commune. Um, eight years later, the Third Republic of 1879 reestablished it as the national anthem. And then in 1887 in official version was adopted by the Ministry of War following the recommendation of a specially appointed commission. The lyrics reflect the situation in France during their composition. The Marseillaise is essentially a call to arms in defense of the homeland against tyranny, which is pretty much the whole deal of the French Revolution. Rebelling against tyranny, a.k.a. the king. That was your French Revolution snapshot. There we go. Uh, the original text of La Marseillaise had six verses, and then a seventh verse that wasn't written by uh, Rouget de Lis was later added on. Um, and I, I saw things that call it the children's verse, and it's like about going into the military profession when they get older, that kind of thing. And I'm like, I can see why people leave it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <clears throat> Only the first and sixth verses of the anthem are customarily used at public occasions today um, because it is still the French national anthem. So you have heard it. If you have ever watched like the opening games to the Olympics or anything like that, you've heard it. Definitely tuned out. Clearly. (laughs) You're going to sing it for me? 
I'm getting there. Oh. <laughs> so the orchestration was composed by Hector Berlioz when the anthem was reinstated after the July Revolution. In September of 1944, a circular issued by the Ministry of Education, so like a pamphlet, called for La Marseillaise to be sung in schools in order, quote, to celebrate our liberation and our martyrs. Kind of like how for a long time schools required children to say the Pledge of Allegiance and then some had to sing the national anthem. I would much rather... Same deal. Kind of a tangent. I would much rather have the national anthem played over the Pledge of Allegiance because the Pledge of Allegiance stands for everything that America doesn't. It's like indoctrination. And that's... It's pretty effed up if you really look at the Pledge of Allegiance. But like the national anthem is just like, pride in our country. This is nice. That's true. I like the national anthem a lot more than I like the pledge. Yeah. Mostly because... It feels like a forced promise, and I don't like that feeling, you know? Right, because you're an yeah. American. Yeah. And Americans <laughs> should hate the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> anyway, we're off topic. On July 14th of 1915, again, on Bastille Day, under, <laughs> under the Third Republic, the ashes of Rouget de Lys were transferred to Les Invalides, <clears throat> Les Invalides, formerly the... Hotel National de Invalid, or which means the National Residence of the Invalids. Um, it was also called Le, Le Hotel de Invalid, which is just ex-nay, the national part. Um, but it's a complex of buildings in the 7th arrondissement of Paris, France, which contains museums and monuments all relating to the military history of France, um, as well as a hospital and a retirement home for war veterans, which was the building's original purpose. So the arrondissement of Paris are kind of like neighborhoods in cities like New York or Boston. But in this case, it's more like Boston because the seventh arrondissement is only one and a half square miles. And the boroughs of New York City are significantly bigger. For reference, Queens is 109 square miles of land. And Manhattan is the smallest with 23 square miles. Hmm. I don't think I ever realized how big the boroughs in New York City are. How big's Boston since you mentioned it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Ah. Hmm. <clears throat> Boston, on the other hand, has much smaller neighborhoods, ranging from Dorchester at six square miles, Brighton, which is where I lived, at just under three, Mission Hill at just three quarters of a square mile, singular square mile, and then Bay Village, which is the city's smallest official neighborhood, and it spares six square blocks. Well, like, I feel <laughs> like that's really weird to include, like, Dorchester and Brighton in the same category as Mission Hill. Well, they're, they're, they're the neighborhoods. They're, like, the officially well, one, recognized one's neighborhoods. One's an actual town, and one is not. Like, Mission Hill's not a town. Well, that's because they're all in the city of Boston. But Brighton and Alston and Dorchester and all those places are actual recognized towns, not just pieces of Boston. No, they're they're part of the city of Boston. They're not their own town. So we just came back from a break about arguing about what was actually a town or not. Guess it was right. Kylie was. That's right. I did my research. 
Although Dorchester was annexed in 1870. I still so I don't had... know what maps you were looking at. Yeah. <laughs> we also learned that Mission Hill was apparently called Parker Hill after a <laughs> Peter Parker who was killed by a barrel of cider. He owned an orchard and made cider and he was killed when a barrel of his own cider fell on him. So many mid-episode fun facts right there. Anyway, back to the French. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Bay Village is Boston's smallest neighborhood and it's six square blocks, which for reference is 600,000 square feet. Like there are houses that are bigger than that. Well, probably not. No. <laughs> My concept of space is really Yeah, it's poor. really bad. <laughs> anyway, six square blocks. <clears throat> Do that what you will. Okay. Maybe entire mansion's properties could possibly take that. For reference, a mile is about 17 square blocks. Or 17 blocks in length. Yeah. I'm like, so not like, square. That's no, not yeah, what yeah. that measurement is. <laughs> a mile is square. What? <laughs> Anyway, back on topic. I actually oui, have, oui. I actually have, but back on topic in my notes because I knew it's a derail fast. Okay, uh, Rouget Delise's ashes went to Les Invalides, which is pretty significant because the complex houses uh, the Musée de l'Armée, which is the military museum of the Army of France, uh, the Musée de Plan Plan Relief which is the Museum of Military Models. So like those things that you always see people playing with in um, like movies where they're like trying to set up their strategy for a, an attack and they're moving all these little figurines. Yeah. Those. Ah. <laughs> I want to go there. <laughs> um, mostly so I can play with the toys. Just kidding. I, I promise I will not touch. She lies. I Continue. Um, <laughs> it also houses the uh, Musée de Desoir contemporaire. Contemporaire. Um, it's been a long time since I've spoken French. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to edit any of That's these fine. names that you screw up because I normally do that, but I don't know what you're saying. So. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, so that is a library, museum, and archive that focuses on 20th century French history, and I really want to go there. Um, as well as the Dôme des Invalides, which is the tallest church in Paris, which holds the tombs of some of France's war heroes, most notably Napoleon. Oh. Yeah. So it was actually pretty um, exciting that a man who pretty much just composed a marching song for his battalion ended up interred among some of France's greatest military minds, um, just pretty much because he composed that song. So cool. I thought that was neat. So speaking of Rouget de Lis, uh, let's learn a little bit more about him. Rouget de Lis was born at Lons-les-Saunières on May 10th, 1760, which reputedly was a market day, which I'm assuming just meant it was really busy. I could not for the life of me figure out why that was significant information because like looking up the town, it's not like it's no, like I couldn't tell if it was like known for its markets or something like that, but it was a market day, so... Hey, oui, oui. <laughs> he was the oldest son of Claude Ignace Rouget and Jean Madeleine uh, Guyand. He enlisted into the army as an engineer and attained the rank of captain. Interestingly, despite composing this revolutionary anthem, Rouget de Lis was a moderate revolutionary and 
some would argue that he was actually a royalist, so like he supported the monarchy. Um, and he was re- imprisoned for refusing to take the oath of allegiance to the new constitution in 1793. Mm. Basically, he pulled a U in uh, middle school. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, like, that was like a year after he composed this revolutionary anthem. So, okay. He fortunately uh, he narrowly escaped the guillotine, <laughs> mostly due to the success of La Marseillaise. And he was freed during the Thermidorian reaction um, and retired to Montan, uh, Montague, sorry, reading hard. Montana. Montana. <laughs> nope, I confused Montague with uh, the French word for mountain. With the Capulets? <laughs> sure, let's go with that. <laughs> it's the name that... of a town. Yes, it is. The, yes, the Capulets. Yes. You just looked at me You're like making I a Romeo and Juliet reference. Like, <laughs> I know so few things in this language. <laughs> Well, jokes on you. They were Italian. I know, but <laughs> the same last name. <laughs> yes. Okay. So after the war, he wrote a couple of other songs um, along the same vein as La Marseillaise, but they never really gained popularity. He also wrote a book of short stories and poems titled Essay en vers et en prose, which is essays in verse and prose. So original. Mm, yes. Um, in 1797... He returned to public life after the July Revolution of 1830 and was awarded the Legion of Honor by uh, Louis Philippe, who was the last king of France. Oh. Unfortunately, he couldn't live off the popularity of La Marseillaise forever, and he died in poverty on June 26, 1836. So, whoops. Um, okay, so now that we've gotten the biographical stuff out of the way, I want to talk a little bit about La Marseillaise itself and its legacy. So it, now you're singing it? In, let me get there. <laughs> Jeez. So it would probably be helpful if you knew what the words were. Um, but if you've heard it, you probably only heard it in French. So now you get a choice, Jonathan. You can have me just like hum the melody or I can attempt to do the actual song. I want to make things difficult for you. I do have to like play in the background though so that I can get the melody. <laughs> Is it public domain? It's the national anthem of France. I would assume so. Just making sure. De la patrie, le jeu de gloire est arrivé. Contre nous de la tyrannie, la tendance sanglante élevée. That's the part I always mess up. You did good. I tried. Citoyen, formez vos bataillons. Marchons, marchons, qu'un sang That last part I get. I'm just glad that this was my first introduction to this song ever, because absolutely did it ring no bells. <laughs> okay, so anyone who are cringing because of how badly I butchered it, I haven't spoken French in almost a decade. So, do with that what you will. Um... Anyway, it's 
I could hear that. Okay, well, fine. Okay, so in English, it's Arise, children of the fatherland. The day of glory has arrived. Against us, tyranny's bloody standard is raised. And then you repeat, bloody standard is raised. Do you hear in the countryside the roar of those ferocious soldiers? They're coming right into your arms to cut the throats of your sons, your women. And then the chorus is to arm citizens, form your battalions. Let's march. Let's march. Let an impure blood soak our fields. Hmm. So, yeah. So the it's, in- it's interesting that the daughters are spared in that. Uh, well, it says your women. It also says sons. So it does make a difference between men and sons. Well, because it's implying that the fathers are the ones out fighting. So they're defending their sons and their women folk. Because no one really cared about the women that much, so they were all just lumped into one category. We added that in as an afterthought, but we figured people will like it. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, the like term here for women is uh, compagna, which means like companion. So like, oh, not <laughs> Holly. Hey, Holly. Would be upset. <laughs> Do you prefer women to companion, Holly? <laughs> You're his woman? <laughs> Our, uh, <laughs> uh, for for background, because that's probably makes no sense to anybody. My godfather, um, at one point, there was, was there was some, there, a family thing, I think it was an obituary, where he was listed, and then his uh, significant other was listed as a companion, and she was like, <laughs> I'm not a dog. <laughs> well, Dogs then, are companions. Well, and then my other comment was it's better than people thinking you're his mistress, which mm. is the other way that companion is usually used. <laughs> anyway. Hi, Holly. Hi, Holly. <laughs> we love you. Sorry. <laughs> you're not a dog. You're not a dog and you're not a mistress. <laughs> and neither are all French women, apparently. <laughs> so, Yeah. Okay. Anyway. So the intent of the lyrics is clear. Calling the French men, because only men could fight back then, and who cared about the women, uh, to arms to defend their country, to protect their homes, their children, their wives, and their lands from the tyrants that sought to stop the people's revolution. It's the ultimate song of defiance. While its lyrics declare that the children of the fatherland's day of glory has arrived, they also issue a blood-curdling warning. Ferocious, Ferocious soldiers are coming under the bloody banner of tyranny to cut the throats of your sons and your women. Citizens, not subjects, are urged to take up arms and march, march. Citizens is important here because it was a huge part of the French Revolution. Um, Destroying the class system slash nobility hierarchy. Oh, I know another French thing. Let them eat cake. Oh, God. Jonathan. That's it. (laughs) Okay. Um, Let's behead him like we beheaded Marie Antoinette. Who's that? Oh, God. I'm kidding. (laughs) Oh, you're the worst. Um, so, right, citizens were a huge part of the French Revolution. Citizens brought everyone onto an even place, like the being a citizen. Your name and your bloodline didn't matter. You were a citizen. This French Revolution's motto essentially uh, was Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, Ulamor, which means liberty, equality, brotherhood, or death. So basically, like, the French Revolution is saying, to like, basically, like, together... Or death. Liberty or death. Live free or die. New Hampshire. I mean, sure. <laughs> they did not include equality 
New Hampshire don't care. Nope. <laughs> or Brotherhood. New Hampshire don't care. <laughs> anyway, now that we're done dissing on another state, <clears throat> it's poorly sandwiched between both of our preferred states, so it, it kind of had it coming, I guess, at this point. It's a stepchild of New England. <laughs> the red-headed child. No, sorry. That... <laughs> That is Rhode Island's yeah. award. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So I found an article from the BBC on the Marseillaise that interviewed uh, David Walker, who was a who is a professor emeritus of French at the University of Sheffield. He said that most people ignore the rather bloodthirsty lyrics. And he thinks that the most important part of the Marseillaise is that unlike God Save the Queen, which is the British national anthem, in case you didn't know, La Marseillaise is not an Eric. Uh, Eric uh, it's not an Eric Cochra. <laughs> it's not an Eric Cochra. We are not playing D anD D right now, <laughs> no, Kylie. Sorry. You can go to our other podcast, Half Wits and Failed Chris, <laughs> for that kind of content. Jesus. Okay. Um. Oh gosh. So unlike God Save the Queen, La Marseillaise is quote not an ar- aristocratic song. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> <coughs> you made me laugh pretty soft. <laughs> <clears throat> One more time. This is why we don't record at 9.30 at night anymore. From the top. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> okay. La Marseillaise is, quote, not an aristocratic song. It's about the people and it's about being a citizen. And what's more, it's a rousing anthem and people can sing it with gusto. The singability hasn't stopped its critics, however. Valérie Gissard de Estaing, president of France from 1974 to 1981, slowed the rhythm because he thought it was too warlike. Okay. It was written during a revolution. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Come on. I don't guy. know what to tell you, bud. Um, France the- wouldn't know war if it bit him. Oh. I mean,. Yes, they would, because they've been taken over so many times. They see it when it comes com- comes at them. That's true. <laughs> um, so the English philosopher and reformer Jeremy Bentham, who was declared an honorary citizen of France in 1791 in recognition of his sympathies for the ideals of the French Revolution. I did not know you could be, on- you could award- be awarded honorary citizenship for your sympathies for an ideal. Um, he was not a huge fan of La Marseillaise. In 1796, he compared it to the beauty and simplicity of God Save the Queen, or God Save the King at that point, because it depends on who's the ruler at the time. Um, and he called it a, quote, war whoop of anarchy and a most dismal, flat, and unpleasing ditty. So really didn't have very nice things to say about it. No, apparently not. <laughs> nope. He then called the melody mischievous, predicting, quote, it is a fortunate incident if, in itself, it should be doomed neither to point of universality nor permanence to gain equal hold on the affections of the people. But joke's on you, my dude. It is universally, universally recognizable for people other than Jonathan, apparently. It's definitely withstood the test of time because it is still the national anthem, and it is firmly entrenched in the hearts of the French people and many others besides, and we will address that in a minute. I don't know what's on my next page, and that's why I said that. 
Um, so other critics have criticized the anthem for being racist, uh, specifically the line about impure blood soaking the fields, which definitely when I read the translation the first time, I was a little like, oh, that's weird. But French Revolution, there was a lot of blood soaking all the fields. So um, Kylie just wants to give him a pass because she likes French. I do like French. Um, I will also say I haven't I don't think I've like I don't think I've ever actually read the rest of the stanzas. So there could be a lot more stuff in there and I have no idea. Um whether that is true or not, the racism, I I don't personally know. Um, I didn't know Rouget Delis, um or his personal beliefs when writing the song. However, you can't deny the incredible legacy of the Marseillaise. Um, it not only called to the people to defend everything that they held dear, but also reminded them to remember that their enemies were not free, but ruled by tyrants and despots. And if they all rallied together, the people in their country would retain the freedoms that they had just won from King Louis the 16th. The enemies weren't bad people. And that's like the key point of it. Um, that's like, that was like the thing that kind of, it was kind of like trying to remind people of that. Like the pe- they themselves weren't bad people. They were under the control of bad people. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Which I think that's a good thing for a lot of people to remember. Yes, yeah, yeah. Just in general. Yeah. There are bad people who persuade normal people to do bad things. Yes, yeah. So the chorus's call to armed citizens links war, citizenship, and nationalism. Three words that three words that would dominate European history in the decades to come. New nations created over the next century would often adopt their own marching anthems, um, like their flags, in imitation of the French. Um, I think we can all agree that the French Revolution was pretty important. <laughs> Jonathan's just like, sure, I yes. don't know. Wee wee. Yeah, wee wee. The modern era has essentially unfolded in the shadow of the French Revolution and the American one, but that has a much different feel to it um, and like meaning behind it because the Americans didn't try to completely dismantle the century-old cultural hierarchy and behead the royal family. Mm. So there's that. They did have their own French war song, though. Oui, oui, mon ami, je m'appelle Lafayette. Oh, <laughs> that is not in the public domain. Are you sure? <laughs> Positive. Well, I didn't play it. I said it. That's so. true. That is fair. <clears throat> anyway, that's a reference to Hamilton for anyone who didn't know. Revolutions and French people. I'm on, po- I'm on point here. Yep. Yep. And you pulled the right name, too. <laughs> the only French person. <laughs> So its central phrases and cultural symbols like La Marseillaise and liberty, fraternity, liberty, equality, fraternity, or death became the clarion call for other major upheavals in modern history, including the Russian Revolution over a century later. Speaking of which, Uh La Marseillaise was adopted as a Republican anthem almost immediately in Russia by those who spoke French. In 1875, Peter Lavrov, a narratist, revolutionary and theorist wrote a Russian language text not a translation so like he made his own lyrics to go with the melody um, of La Marseillaise this workers Marseillaise became one of the most popular popular revolutionary songs in Russia and was used in the revolution of 1905 after the February revolution of 1917 it was used as the semi-official national anthem of the new Russian Republic hmm. And even after the October Revolution, they have a lot of month revolutions. 
Um, it remained in use for a while alongside the International. So it has a fairly significant history in Russia as well. <clears throat> so Le Marseillaise has also made its way into a lot of media. There's a whole long list, but I'm only going to touch on a couple of them today. Max Steiner weaves quotes from Le Marseillaise throughout his score for the 1942 film Casablanca. And it also forms a pretty important plot element when patrons of Rick's Cafe American, spontaneously led by Czech underground leader Victor Laszlo, sing the actual song to drown out Nazi officers who had started singing Die Wacht on Rhine. I don't speak German sure. at all, so who knows? Um, which then caused Rick's to be shut down. So I've never seen the whole movie, but I've seen the scene. And even without the like complete context, I can't help but get goosebumps watching it. There's something about that song and like that context that is like very powerful, even though it is a movie. It's always powerful shouting down Nazis. I mean, yes. <laughs> Doing it in song is even better. Everything done in song is better. <laughs> um, so that scene in particular is reminiscent of one of Jean Renoir's uh, La Grande Illusion, in which French and British prisoners of war performing amateur theatricals to a mixed audience of guards and fellow prisoners sing the song aggressively at the Germans upon hearing of a minor French victory. And I just really enjoyed the phrase, sing aggressively at someone. Yes. Because that's pretty much how I live my life. I sing aggressively at you, usually. Yes. <laughs> so the other reference in popular media is from the Beatles. Oh. All You Need Is Love uses the opening lines of La Marseillaise as the introduction. So the whole point up until they start singing All You Need Is Love is the opening notes to La Marseillaise. Yeah. And I had to go check that for myself because I didn't believe it when I read it because I don't listen to a lot of the Beatles, I will be honest. Like, I know them, but, like, I don't listen to them regularly. So I was like, it could be or it could be close. I don't know. So I went and listened to it and I was like, oh, it really is, like, the full, like, first, like, like stanza of Le Marseille's. <laughs> so in more recent times, Le Marseille's has held even deeper meaning with the November 2015 terror attacks in Paris on November 13th, 2015. 130 people were killed in a series of coordinated terrorist attacks. Three suicide bombers struck outside the Stade de France in Saint-Denis during a football match which was followed by several mass shootings and a suicide bombing at cafes and restaurants. Gunmen carried out another mass shooting and took hostages at an Eagles of Death metal concert in the Bataclan Theater, leading to a standoff with police. 430 people were injured Whoa. on top of the 130 that died. 90 of those 130 were at the Bataclan Theater. Um, the attacks were the deadliest in France since the Second World War. In the aftermath, Le Marseillaise became a symbol of unity and support from around the world, with people sharing recordings and impromptu performances of Le Marseillaise in a show of solidarity. Uh, historian Simon Schama told BBC Today, quote, Le Marseillaise is the great example of courage and solidarity when facing danger. That's why it's so invigorating. That's why it really is the greatest national anthem in the world ever. I'm sure a lot of our listeners remember these attacks since it was a little under five years ago. But the huge outpouring of support from around the world and the solidarity and perseverance of Parisians in the aftermath was truly inspiring. It essentially became a you can attack us, but we'll still stand kind of feel. 
the Marseillaise is pretty much came pretty much full circle in that moment, straight back to an anthem of defiance aimed at those who wish to break the backs of the people. But the people wouldn't break. Um, so that's the Marseillaise. Sorry, I got a little uh, thesis defense up there. Uh-huh. <laughs> I finally got to talk about the French Revolution. And you're just lucky this is not like eight hours long, <laughs> to if be completely honest. If any listeners honest. search for Kylie Bickford on Google, oh, no, please don't. you will find her thesis <laughs> please on don't. the French Revolution. Thanks for putting my last name out there, bub. <laughs> uh, it's already out there because it's on Podchaser. Oh, dang. <laughs> um. <clears throat> Also, your Twitter account, of which you like our Twitter. Oh, yeah, that's true. And I think in my Twitter thing, it says co-host of Fatwood History. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> um, so uh, there's just something about this song and the French Revolution that like really speaks to me. Um, and for anyone who wants to listen to it now that I've A, butchered it, and then waxed poetic about this song, I highly recommend the YouTube video Oh no! <clears throat> Another name I'm gonna butcher. Uh, Mariah Matthew singing La Marseillaise. Um, it's from the 100th anniversary of the Eiffel Tower in 1989. She's amazing, and you can hear like the power and the heart behind it. And what I found really funny was that I saw that quote from the historian um, in reference to the the Paris bombings with the "It's the best um, anthem in the world ever." And I was laughing because I had just read a bunch of the YouTube comments on that video because I was listening to the video going, I wonder if I can remember the melody. And like all of the comments were like, I wish this was our anthem. This is so much better than X, Y, and Z anthem. Like this is like the most powerful anthem. It's the best anthem. And I'm just sitting there going, was he reading the YouTube comments when he made this quote? Maybe. (laughs) So yeah, so that is the Marseillaise. Very cool. I also just thought of a joke that I should have done right in the beginning when you said, I'm going to say Marseille a lot. And I said, it's like a Pokemon. Marseille duck. Jeez. Okay, Professor Oak. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's that's all I got. Okay, cool. Call to action time. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can visit our website at www.halfwit-history.com and you can shoot us an email at halfwitpod at gmail.com. Uh, if you have any topic suggestions, um, comments, feedback, we would love to hear from you. Um, fun facts in relation to topics that we've covered or something like that, maybe? Or like personal anecdotes. Have you seen Nessie? Let us know. <laughs> Jonathan's like having whiplash from my random jump back to like episode like 15 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and thank you to the Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find their SoundCloud in our show notes. You should go check them out. Yeah. Um, and also we have a Ko-Fi if you want to tip us or if you end up going and reading Kylie's thesis because it has so many views on it and you're it's like, terrifying. <clears throat> yeah. Um, to those like some 30,000 people or something or whatever that have downloaded my thesis, I am so sorry. <laughs> so sorry. But if you need a really good high school report. <clears throat> it was college. Thank you very much. <laughs> No, so I'm at least it's if like they need a good high school. Report, oh, oh, you oh, always oh. Talk about how bad it was. 
It was like 65 pages. Don't turn that into your high school teacher. They will just be like, nope, it's too long. (laughs) But if you do, you can tip us at ko-fi.com forward slash Halfwood History. Yes, I would love to make money off my undergraduate thesis. That would be great. (laughs) Fun fact. Fun facts. You want to go first or you want me? Actually, you went first last time. I will go first this time. Yes, you go first. And I actually think your fun fact is more pertinent. Good. So my fun fact is on April 24th of 1969. Nice. Paul McCartney (laughs) says that there is no truth to the rumors that he is dead. Alrighty then. A little bit of Beatles conspiracy up in there. Yeah, I didn't even know that you had a little Beatles line in there either. I know, look at me go. (laughs) Alrighty. My fun fact is one term President Jimmy Carter is remembered for many things. The Iran hostage crisis, the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island, the late 70s energy crisis, and being attacked by a killer rabbit what? on April 20th, 1979. Well, where was this holy hand grenade? We're getting there. Oh. Apparently, he was fishing in his hometown of Plains, Georgia, when a rabbit that had been chased by hounds jumped into the water near him and swam aggressively towards his boat. Carter's solution was to shoot it away with a paddle. And there is a picture of this. Wow. Yes. This otherwise unimportant event turned into political fodder for his enemies who wanted to portray Carter's presidency as hapless and weak because he had to fend off a rabbit (laughs) with an oar. It probably didn't help that Monty Python and the Holy Grail release was around that same time and it features a scene with a rabbit killing people. Yep. So the rabbit that swam towards Carter became known as the killer rabbit. Quite the memorable term. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> the columnist Dave Barry once referred to it as the single most memorable event of Carter's presidency. Oh, no. Yeah. So that's that. <laughs> Tis but a scratch. <laughs> I'm not dead yet. All right. <laughs> I wish I was dead now. <laughs> <laughs> now that everyone's going to find your thesis and your rendition of the national anthem. Oh, God. <laughs> Please. As always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian who's incredibly embarrassed. And we hope to see you next week. Since you've gone, then.